Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. So glad that you could join us today. And so glad that we have Professor Michael Kraft from the University of Wisconsin joining us today. You know, sometimes it's a lot of fun to be the host of Go Green Radio. Just uh, this past Sunday, I read Professor Kraft's uh, op-ed in my local newspaper. It was syndicated all over the country. And as I was reading it, I thought, you know, I have a few more questions I'd like to ask Professor Kraft. So I emailed him and said, won't you please come on my radio show? And he did. And I feel very lucky to have him on. He's a political scientist, but he focuses on environmental policy and politics. And so we're going to be hitting a subject that, unless you live in a cave, uh, is all over the news, whether you watch cable news or your local TV news. Um, um, everybody's talking politics right now. It's the midterm election season, and the campaigns are all getting in high gear. And clean energy uh, and energy uh, in general is a big topic. So we're going to be talking to Professor Kraft about the politics of clean energy and some of the recommendations that he made in his recent op-ed piece. And it was entitled, Republicans Must Embrace Clean Energy for Their Future. And I'm so excited to have you on, Professor Kraft. Thank you for joining us on Go Green Radio. Well, thank you for having me on. Well, I've been really looking forward to talking with you ever since I read your piece. Uh, as I mentioned, it was entitled, Republicans Must Embrace Clean Energy for Their Future. Why do you say that? Expound on, on that concept for us. Sure. Uh, and I might add first that uh, op editorials like that are very limited in space. I can only write 625 words, and I think the column actually appeared under many different titles around the country. But why? Why should Republicans embrace clean energy? And the assumption here is they have not so far embraced clean energy for the most part. I, I think there are a number of reasons why they should. The first is that this should be a good year for Republicans. Uh, all the polls tell us that Democrats are going to suffer quite a bit. Republicans can come back from their losses in 2006 and 2008. Um, this is a time when most of the public uh, distrust government. And they believe the country's on the wrong track, so it's a time of opportunity for the party to redefine itself and appeal to the public in ways I think it has not done so quite so well before. Now, secondly, we um, have a lot of recent surveys that tell us the vast majority of Americans really do favor government action on energy issues, including efforts to limit the effects of climate change. And I don't think the Republican Party can really succeed long-term especially, if they continue to be seen as in opposition to sensible actions that people want. Or to put it in other ways, the party cannot appeal only to its most conservative members, say Tea Party activists, and, and also do well in the general election campaign when they have to appeal to Democrats and independents. And third, we really have a fundamental need in this country and in the world to deal with energy issues seriously. We need to get on a path for sustainable use of energy and sustainable economic development, and that means clean energy sources. And it also means an intensive and creative search for new sources of energy, in addition to the simple things like energy conservation and efficiency that states like California have been doing very well for a long time. So it's very much in our interest to do this, and I hope... Uh, Republicans in Congress and across the nation and the states and cities uh, can lend their support to this. 
Well, I think I think you've made some excellent points, and I'm hoping that a lot of Republicans are listening to this because, as you mentioned, the polls do show that this could be quite a year for Republicans in the midterm elections. And if that's the case, uh, you know, we really do have an opportunity to move forward with some energy policy that, you know, it, it, and it goes from everything from energy sources to you know distribution and infrastructure, and we'll get to some of that in a few minutes. You know, the the basis of your article was. Um, uh, uh, some comments on the federal subsidies that the Obama administration has um, put forward for subsidizing the purchase of electric vehicles. And um, as you mentioned in the opening of your article, it's politically fashionable in some corners of the political landscape to denounce federal subsidies. I mean, we're facing unprecedented national debt. And on the surface, it may seem unwise to use federal dollars to encourage Americans to purchase electric vehicles. But um, unlike the Cash for Clunkers program that a lot of people are familiar with, which was aimed at infusing badly needed cash into the auto industry, subsidies for electric vehicles have a much broader strategy behind it, as I understand it. What are some of the potential upshots of infusing cash into the electric vehicle market? Well, there are, I think there are a lot of potential uh, upshots. And, uh, but I would say, first, you're quite, quite correct. That's the reason why it's tough to argue for federal subsidies of any kind, is uh, subsidies are expenditures, and there will be billions of dollars spent on this program. So you, uh, but every expenditure is not necessarily wasted money. Even people who complain about the deficit really call for a cut in the defense budget, for example, during the time when we're fighting two wars abroad. So, how would you defend the expenditure of federal dollars? Uh, there would be tax credits for purchase of electric vehicles, which some people would say, first of all, is an unproven technology; they're very expensive. They're very limited. And, um, of course, much of that is true. But So what are the upshots? Well, the, the basic argument that both liberals and conservatives make is that we need to get away from a heavy reliance on imported oil. Um, and that means developing sources other than gasoline for our transportation needs. And we can talk about some aspects of that uh, later on. But the reason why subsidies are necessary for the electrical electric vehicle industry to take off is that it's a very small market, a tiny market at present. Uh, and that's true for a lot of reasons. One, the technology is brand new and people don't trust it. Uh, the cost is very high. Uh, General Motors just announced this week that the price of the Chevrolet vote is going to be $41,000. And it's a small, basically, in the economy car. The Nissan Leaf is likely to be in the $32,000 Range. So the subsidies help bring down that initial cost, and that's kind of the whole point, by allowing more people to buy a car at a reasonable price, you expand what would otherwise be a very tiny market because of the doubts that we have about the car. And in addition to the federal subsidies, which can range up to $7,500 in tax credits, uh, a number of states, including California, will have separate programs. California's, I believe, will run up to $5,000. So we're talking about some real money that could reduce uh, the price of the vehicles. There are other upshots as, as well. I, I think um, as government begins to provide these tax credits, they will also be building uh, recharging stations around the country. There are nine regions in the United States where some of the economic recovery funds are being spent. That's money Congress has already approved. And, uh, three of them are in California, in the Los Angeles area, Sacramento, and the San Jose, San Francisco area. Others are Washington, D.C., New York, Orlando, Florida, Austin, Texas, Detroit, and a, and a few others. Uh, and uh, despite all of that, I suspect there's still going to be 
um, a fairly modest market. The automakers know this. They're not going to produce many volts. The Nissan Leaf, as I understand, it's already sold out through the end of next year mm-hmm. because they weren't going to produce that many to begin with. Um, <clears throat> but this is, a, this is a way of jump-starting the market, and doing that is very much in the interest of the country if we ever want to uh, reduce our reliance on imported oil. And, and there is a little bit of a history to doing that. Uh, the Clinton administration had something called the Partnership for a New Generation of Vehicles, which was electrical and hybrid vehicles. The Bush administration had a Freedom Car initiative that favored uh, hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, the Obama administration now tends to jump back in favor of electric vehicles. So there is a history of this. And China, by the way, which is now the world's largest automaker, has a substantial subsidy for electric vehicles. And the technology is being developed rapidly in China and a few other countries, essentially the battery technologies for electric vehicles. So I think it's in our interest to be competitive in those markets uh, and to help the market develop more quickly than it otherwise would by, by lowering the price of the cars. And that's the reason. Well, and a lot of folks might wonder why the price of the car is so much. And a few months ago, we had Jason Wolf from a company called Better Place on the show, and he's the uh, head of business development in the North America region. And we were talking about, you know, buying an electric vehicle means also buying the battery, at least currently. Now, Better Place has a plan to, to perhaps, you know, reduce that need, but it's kind of like, you know, going out and buying a traditionally fueled gasoline-fueled vehicle and buying all of the fuel that you'll ever need up front. You know, that's why, you know, the the batteries are so expensive and it's tantamount to doing that. So, you know, government subsidies can offset, you know, some of that battery price, which really is a big chunk of the price of an EV. Without that subsidy, there'd be almost nobody buying these, these vehicles, except for the few people who just like the latest thing on the block and want to demonstrate their environmental credentials. And there are many people who bought a Toyota Prius when it first came out. Because it was obviously not a regular car, its appearance sent a signal, and, and there are consumers who, who, particularly affluent consumers, who want to send that message. Prius, by the way, uh, Toyota built and sold those initial Priuses below the cost of manufacture. That is, they really? have their own internal subsidy. Wow. They're sort of giving them away initially. And uh, Nissan argues that the, the Leaf will need a subsidy for about five years before the market is developed. So, so we're, we're really talking about a short term maybe up to four or five years, subsidy. The government typically will say, well, we'll do this for the first X number of vehicles sold. It's not going to be a continuing subsidy for wealthy people who buy you know, green cars. The intention is clearly to jumpstart a market, and after that the subsidy should go away. Right, right. You know, and when you talk about the need for recharging stations and some of the infrastructure, it makes me think, you know, to some of the research that I've done about why our infrastructure is somewhat lacking. When we talk about energy and energy infrastructure, um, even water infrastructure and a lot of other, you know, pieces of infrastructure, it's it's suffering in our country. And I know you're a native Californian. I live in California now. And back in the days when you were still living here, um, it was a bipartisan commitment on the part of Governors Pat Brown and Ronald Reagan to commit 10 to 11 percent of the general fund to infrastructure. And now California is spending only 1 percent of its general fund on infrastructure, and that's not, you know, it's, it's not something that's not done otherwhere, you know, other places. There are other states and, and the U.S. where 
places where the infrastructure is crumbling. And I'm wondering if you see this electrification of light transportation in the U.S. and um, some of the things that we would be putting in place along with these subsidies to, you know, start the market, jump the market um, in electric vehicles. If you see that as tantamount to investing in our infrastructure, you know, once again, if that's something that Americans could get behind. I think they could, and in part, uh, your, your description of the infrastructure needs reminds me, this is a job creation measure, too. Right. Because, because when you're talking about highways, bridges, subways, light rail, high-speed rail, you're talking about people who have to be employed to do that. And the numbers I've seen about the California high-speed rail system, which will be some 800 miles, a completely new system. Uh, voters approved this by a rail bond measure in November 2008. There's very strong public support. I just saw a poll this morning, and uh, just from uh, two months ago. Um, and it's a reminder that, that there will be lots of jobs created by doing that sort of thing. The California project alone will create something like 600,000 jobs during construction and perhaps 500,000 permanent jobs once it's done. But the reason we haven't done this continuously is that infrastructure is not a, you know, a headline issue. Until bridges fall apart and highways develop massive potholes, we don't tend to think about infrastructure. In some ways, we don't think about schools and the need for new roofs and new computer systems because they're not immediate issues. But clearly, we need to invest in infrastructure and electric, <laughs> making the rails and the infrastructure right. more electric uh, is, is clearly at the top of what we should be doing. Right now, we have a trust federal highway trust fund that's paid for by gasoline taxes, most of which goes for federal highways. Small part goes for mass transit. We could certainly, Congress could certainly um, redesign that system or add other uh, components to it that would provide some uh, continuous funding and therefore help states and localities work on infrastructure issues I agree. with a more assured budget. I agree. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back with more on the politics of clean energy with Professor Michael Kraft. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. 
Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us. I want to give a big shout out to all my tweets who are listening, uh, all my Twitter friends that are out there listening to voiceofamerica.com. You guys are great. And I have a special surprise for you guys. We're giving away a prize today for the first five people who send me a tweet. And my Twitter handle is at Jill Buck. You can win a copy of Professor Michael Kraft's book, it's uh, in its fifth edition, came out in the spring, called Environmental Policy and Politics. So if you want to win that book, send me a tweet right now, and the first five will win a signed copy from Professor Kraft. And for those of you who want the book and don't get a chance to win, you can find his book by going to Amazon.com and just typing in his name, Professor Michael Kraft, or type in the name of the book, Environmental Policy and Politics. Well, once again, thank you for being on the show. Uh, Professor Kraft, I'm really glad that we were able to talk with you today. Thanks for being with us. I'm again delighted to be here. Well, you know, you mentioned something about China that I found very interesting. As many of my listeners know, I do a lot of work um, in China. In the last segment, you were talking about how China has become the world's largest auto manufacturer, and that's true, and a lot of Americans don't realize that. Um, Last year, I believe it was, Maybe the year before, Fortune magazine had a cover story on Warren Buffett, and it was him with an electric vehicle and a big orange uh, plug, a big uh, you know electric cord, <laughs> and it talked about how he now owns 10% of the stock for a Chinese electric car manufacturer called BYD. Now, BYD used to simply be a battery manufacturer, but they bought a failing state-owned enterprise, a car manufacturing company in China, and they combined that capability with their battery technology to become a, a 
electric car manufacturer. And Warren Buffett, um, the oracle, as he's called in many circles, bought 10% of their stock. And when he made that move, I felt like that should have been a huge red flag to American auto manufacturers. Um, What's your assessment, Professor Kraft, I mean, about the future of America's stake in auto manufacturing? It's no secret that we need manufacturing (laughs) jobs in the U.S. How do you see Warren Buffett's BYD investment relevant to that? Well, it certainly is a red flag. As most listeners will recall, it wasn't that long ago when gasoline prices were spiking that the auto industry went into a nosedive and required massive federal bailouts. GM is still essentially a federal automobile company until they sell off the the stock. And why did that come about? Because the U.S. automakers were making the wrong kinds of cars. They were making cars and light trucks and vans that were not fuel efficient. People didn't want. Uh, China, for all sorts of reasons, has gone in a different direction. China is, is, is the leading producer of a number of uh, environmental technologies from uh, electric vehicles to wind power to solar power, and they're becoming the, the, one of the leading world manufacturers of lithium-ion batteries that power electric cars. So China is on top of this uh, in many ways, and the United States really is in a catch-up uh, stage, and that's another reason to favor some subsidies uh, for electric vehicles. But the automobile industry is in the throes of a major change. I think almost every company has got multiple models under development that will be very different. Uh, we'll, we'll see a variety of new technologies from uh, clean diesel vehicles to electrics to hybrids. Um, and uh, they're fighting with one another to see who can uh, be first to market with vehicles that will meet uh, new needs now and in the future. And part of this is, of course, developing the batteries that uh, will power electric vehicles. And the federal government, in addition to fostering the purchase of electric vehicles through these uh, tax credits that we talked about, is also subsidizing directly the industries that develop new technologies, including battery technologies. And there are U.S. industries. Johnson Controls and other battery manufacturers are clearly working on developing and lowering the cost of those batteries so that we can produce cars that are affordable as well as, as have the capacity to go, say, a, a, really to go 100 miles without a recharging. The Nissan Leaf is supposed to go that far, but early reports say it may, may not. These cars, of course, can be recharged for those of us who have garages, recharged overnight in the garage, or be recharged at the, the charging stations that the government is building around the country. But we're late to this game. China got on it earlier, and we have to catch up. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. A lot of folks, um, and and I I have a ton of friends who are at every level of the Republican Party, at the national level, state level, local level, and a lot of them will say, look, government should not be in the job of picking technology winners. Uh, You know, this is a a private industry matter. Let the market decide. But, you know, my very first Go Green Radio interview of 2010 was with a gentleman named Robbie Diamond. He's the head of the Electrification Coalition in D.C. And actually, that organization um, is a spinoff in some respects of an, of an earlier organization that he was the head of that had a lot of four-star admirals and generals from all branches of the military. And they made a strong case that the electrification of light transportation in the U.S. has 
a, a huge national security implication. And he made that case uh, on the show. And so where a lot of folks would, would just be kind of looking myopically at electric vehicles and, you know, this, you know, transportation technology and saying, why is the government getting involved in that? He made the case that, look, one of the primary jobs of government is security and to keep us safe. That's part of why we formed a government to begin with, because we wanted, you know, national security. How do you see these two issues combining and interfacing, electric vehicles and the electrification of light transportation and the government's role in terms of national security? Well, they clearly do relate, and it's, it's, uh, I'm also not one who thinks the government has done a great job historically of picking the technologies that do well, and it's easy, and I agree with Republicans and conservatives on this. The government actually has a pretty poor record of figuring out in advance which technologies will work, so a fair amount of money has been wasted picking the wrong technologies. And, of course, that may happen with electric vehicles, too. Maybe we subsidize the wrong ones, but, but the bigger issue here is the one you just identified. It's, it's not just a question of should we favor the Chevrolet Volt or the Nissan Leaf or whatever comes down the pike in a year or two. It's that the country has to recognize that energy is a national security issue. And it's easy to see when you think about some of the figures that are bandied about. We import about 60% of the oil we use. Most of that oil, about 70%, goes for transportation. Well, where does the imported oil come from? Well, a fair amount comes from Canada, but some of it comes from the Middle East. And some of the money that we send abroad, when you buy a gallon of gasoline, that's money going to another country to pay for the oil. And that money may wind up in the hands of nations that are not very friendly to us. And the United States is heavily dependent on the world's oil supply. We have about 4% of the world's population, but we use 20% of its oil. And I would argue that is not a good thing. Uh, George W. Bush put it nicely when he said, we are as a nation addicted to oil, and that has to change. And uh, part of the reason to favor electric vehicles and to take more broadly to take energy issues seriously is to begin to deal with that. Politicians are slowly recognizing that. The House climate change bill last year was called the American Clean Energy and Security Act. And that wasn't an accident. Many politicians are beginning to say the way to persuade people that energy policy is national security policy is keep hammering home that point about imported oil means dependent, dependence on other countries and sending money abroad. And the same, by the way, is true of another aspect of electric vehicles that people haven't heard about. Uh, they're so-called rare earth minerals, most of which come from China. China has just slashed its exports of rare earth minerals by about 72%. And you need those to build electric vehicles and the batteries that we use. And a Government Accountability Office report released just a couple of months ago looked at the national security risks associated with our dependence on rare earth minerals. Here's another technology where we simply have to develop a domestic capacity to produce the materials that go in to computers and defense weaponry and vehicles rather than to be dependent on other nations to sell those to us because they may decide, as China is, they need all of their own materials. They're not going to send them to us, and we're going to be left without the materials that are essential to develop these products. Right. And, you know, you've probably seen in my bio, I'm a former naval officer, and my husband's a former Marine Corps officer, and so we run with a lot of veterans, as you might imagine, and there are a growing number of veterans from the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts who are advocating for this very thing. They're advocating for a major shift to clean energy in the U.S., because many of them 
believe that the weapons that were aimed at them when they were in those conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan were purchased by oil-rich countries. And these veterans are pointing to what they believe is, you know, the way that our country is funding both sides of the war. You know, we're funding our side, but then our oil purchases of $700 billion a year are funding the weaponry on the other side of the war. And so it seems like that would be a very you know, a very good case for Republicans to make. They're supposed to be the party of, you know, national security issues. But that would be an, another reason to embrace no, I, clean I, energy. I absolutely agree. And what, what's been fascinating in the last couple of years is we have had leaders from, uh, from the Defense Department, from the intelligence community, the CIA, the National Security Agency, and others, who have tried to make this argument. There have been countless federal reports that have emphasized the national security implications of reliance on oil, of climate change, and related energy issues. And uh, I, I thought initially when I heard those, that well, that this will finally make it possible to have bipartisan cooperation on energy issues. And uh, I'm afraid that hasn't happened. But well, I will remain you know, hopeful. I remain hopeful because <laughs> I think it's a very so- solid argument. I do. For too. Some and we're going to take a quick commercial break. Yeah, okay. We're going to follow that that lead into the next segment. So, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today we're talking with Professor Michael Kraft from the University of Wisconsin. And I want to say to all of his students who are going to be taking his classes in the fall, you guys are so lucky because I could sit and talk to Professor Kraft all day long. We're talking about the politics of green energy. I read his op-ed in the local newspaper on Sunday um, talking about why Republicans should embrace clean energy uh, for the party's future and for America's future, and we're talking about that. I, I get a little geeky when I can combine a conversation that deals with environmental policy and p- politics. I mean, I really love that, so I, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show, Professor Kraft. Well, again, I'm glad, glad to be on. <laughs> well, you know, when we talk about electric vehicles, we ultimately come around to discussing the source of electricity. And though electric vehicles emit no carbon, we know that the majority of our nation's electricity comes from coal, which certainly does emit yeah. carbon, as well as other particulate matter. Now, some of my listeners know I am a coal miner's daughter, so I'm not, you know, a big anti-coal person, but I'm also the mother of an asthmatic child. So my question to you, Professor Kraft, is what do you say to those who are concerned that electric cars simply shift the carbon from the tailpipe to the coal stacks? Um, Are we really solving any environmental problems by switching to electric vehicles? Uh, No, we're not. Not if we (laughs) create electricity by burning (laughs) coal. Thank you for your candor. (laughs) Coal is the dirtiest fuel that we uh, use to produce electricity. Uh, California and a few other states are much more heavily dependent on uh, natural gas, which is still a fossil fuel, but which is much cleaner than coal. Um, uh, the Scientific American actually had a, an issue back in July, if your listeners want to look at it, that looked at the, um, the different, uh, looked at a map of the United States and, and, and whether plug-in hybrids or electric vehicles made sense in terms of being a clean fuel, depending on how electricity is produced in those states. And that varies quite a bit around the country. In some areas of the West Coast, hydropower is very common. In other areas, it's, it's coal. So what's the solution? Well, as I said in the op-ed piece, I think I threw in one sentence to say, obviously, if you produce electricity from coal, this is not environmental progress. So how else can you produce it? You can produce electricity by running natural gas in plants, and that would be a cleaner way to do it. There are so-called clean. Some people argue you can have clean coal plants if you prepare the coal in a certain way, and eventually, if we can learn how to capture the carbon that comes out of, of the plants, we also have to do a better job of controlling the particulates, which is what kills so many people in the United States each year and around the world, including China, which is heavily dependent on coal. For all the good things China is doing, it builds two new coal fire power plants every week, and, and these are not uh, on the whole modern plants. And unfortunately, the outlook for the world is that we're going to see a lot more demand for electricity. Uh, the International Energy Agency says we're going to see something like a 76% increase in electricity demand in the next two decades to meet the world's growing population and development. So clearly we have to find some other way to produce that electricity. We cannot keep doing it through coal. Otherwise, it would be really ridiculous to call these clean vehicles or an environmentally sound vehicles if the electricity is coming from one of the dirtiest sources that we have. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because in response to Copenhagen and and global pressure to reduce the carbon emissions of their 
burgeoning economies, China and India, as well as several European countries, have started to step up plans to build carbon-free nuclear power plants. And a lot of Republicans are in favor of doing this, you know, the same in the U.S., but the anti-nuclear activists in this country have really been pretty effective at arresting the development of what might otherwise be an aggressive nuclear energy resurgence in America. As a political scientist, you know, you have a focus on environmental public policy. What's your advice on nuclear energy in the U.S.? Should we build more plants, or do you think that wind and solar can get the job done for us? No, wind and solar clearly cannot get the job done. They're, too, they're much too limited, and... Uh, they're difficult, of course, in storing the energy from wind and, and, uh, right. and uh, solar, which is another matter. Wind and solar, for all the development we have seen and all the development we're likely to see, these are marginal sources. So we're left with what can be the base load for electric utilities, and it's going to be coal and natural gas or nuclear. So if we move away from fossil fuel, that, that means curtailing, and this would be a slow transition. I mean, we have a mix of energy sources now. It's in the process of changing. The future, almost everybody agrees, the future should be more heavily on renewable fuels, including wind and solar and biomass. But the big question, what to do with nuclear? I'm not particularly anti-nuclear. I do recognize there are major political hurdles. The public is still very nervous about nuclear energy. The last surveys I saw show the public's still marginally in favor of nuclear power, but it's the smallest margin of any energy source. And the problem with nuclear, I think, is really its cost. Uh, here again, there's a federal subsidy. President Obama, hoping to get some Republican support for his energy policy, which I don't think really worked out that way, uh, this year endorsed a new federal loan guarantee program for the construction of new nuclear power plants. Well, we haven't built nuclear power plants in a long time in this country. This is an effort to, again, jumpstart a new generation of nuclear reactors. The federal government will assume much of the cost of those reactors to not make it all the way through. But nuclear power is very expensive. And so I'm not so sure it's going to be competitive on that basis. Almost certainly, without the federal loan guarantees, the utilities would never get loans from banks to build the nuclear power plants. Still, if we can figure out a way to have nuclear power plants, build them in a way that's more economical, um, we have to deal with the nuclear waste issue uh, that uh, previous administrations and Congresses had approved the Yucca Mountain facility, and it was pending approval by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The Obama administration essentially pulled the plug on that by no longer funding it. Mm-hmm. So nuclear power produces waste. We've got to deal with the waste issue. But around the world, nuclear power plants are being built. China's building many nuclear power plants. Asia. Western Europe is, again, considering nuclear power, and the United States probably will have to do that as a transition source of energy, if nothing else. Well, and I, you know, even the French, um, you know, and, and when you look at this from a political standpoint, in the U.S., it seems to be that the left-leaning you know, folks tend to be anti-nuclear, and we think of the French as somewhat liberal, um, yeah. although you know they, they've gotten a bit more conservative in who they've elected, you know, of late. But they actually get about seventy-five percent of yeah. their electricity from nuclear, and they actually sell four billion dollars worth of nuclear electricity outside of their country. It's, it's actually, actually a moneymaker. Yeah. So it's it's kind of strange how politically. You know, this issue is viewed in Europe versus the United States. How much of the difficulty in building and getting loans for building nuclear plants is due to 
concerns about political obstacles and, and holding up the, the plants yeah. being built. Yeah, there certainly ha- there has been a lot of opposition in the past. Uh, and as I say, nuclear has been an expensive uh, fuel. Uh, not so much existing plants. The existing plants are actually pretty economical. It's building the new ones that would make them expensive. And I, I'm sad to say, um, most major environmental groups remain anti-nuclear. There are very few that will come out flatly and say we ought to build nuclear power plants. So environmentalists and liberals in general, I think, are still questioning nuclear power. Republicans, on the other hand, as you say, have embraced it. Uh, I think uh, industry and many other people in the country would be happy if we just had a reliable source of energy, and I think there has been increasing support for nuclear energy, which is why the Obama administration has has lent its support to the, the loan guarantee program, and we'll see if that works out. We should know in the next year or two whether utilities really will push ahead aggressively to build new plants in this country. Well, you know, there's another issue in all of this, and when we talk about renewable energy, you know, everybody gets excited about wind and solar. It makes the headlines every week that some new deal has been struck. And, and it's not uncommon to find elected officials and politicos who are becoming more and more well-versed in energy issues and energy policy, but one of the things that I'm not hearing as much of when I talk to some of the policy staffers and even some of the elected officials is a good understanding of the need for energy storage and coupling good public policy around energy storage capabilities with all of this investment in renewable energy sources. What's your take on what we need to be doing in terms of public policy to infuse this energy storage capacity that's needed to take full advantage of the wind and solar technology that we're putting in. Yes, we probably need some more federal subsidies. <laughs> we, <laughs> we need, uh, uh, energy storage is a big issue. You're, you're quite right. And so wind and solar sound great, except that they, they produce electricity that has to be used as it is generated, which is clearly not the case with coal. You can have a pile of coal sit there, and you burn it when you need it. But wind and solar are going to be produced continuously and have to be used, and so the trick is, what, what do you do to store that electricity for use, for example, at night? There are basically two technologies that are widely endorsed, and both are, um, could use further technological development, and an infusion of federal or state dollars might help that. Uh, one is so-called compressed air, where you use the energy that you have available to compress air, and then you use that compressed air as actually a storage mechanism. The other is called pumped hydro where you use the, essentially you, you use the energy you have to pump water up a hill, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then as the water comes down, you have hydropower. Uh, I'm sure there are other technologies as well. Um, and, you, and, of course, battery technology. If you, can, if you have really efficient batteries, you can produce electricity through wind and solar and store, just like we're talking about batteries in electric cars. Right. If you have really good-sized commercial batteries you, that are efficient, it would make sense to build batteries to store the electricity and then to, to use the electricity when you can no longer um, rely on wind or solar, for example, at, at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think just uh, there's been a lot of interest in the last couple of years in so-called smart grid technology. A lot of electricity is wasted because the way we send it around the country over electric wires and there are some pilot projects around the country, including one in Boulder, Colorado, to imp- improve uh, the, the the grid and make it smarter by understanding how much energy is needed at different times and making sure we we time the production of energy with its use, particularly electricity. Uh, 
so there is much that can be done, and the federal government has assisted. Uh, some of the economic recovery funds have gone into these new technologies, and I'm sure there'll be an interest in having more in the future. And, of course, private investment in new technologies, because eventually the utilities themselves are going to have to have a mechanism for storing uh, electricity. Well, you know, we're, the premise of our discussion today was around the issue that Republicans, as we head into the midterm elections, should be embracing clean energy. And let's pretend for a moment that you're talking with all of the political strategists who are, you know, getting ready to fight these campaign battles uh, going into the midterm elections. And let's say they're sold. They're saying, okay, Professor Kraft, I'm on board. I think you're right. We need, as a party, to embrace a clean energy future for America and come up with a strategy for this. But you're a political scientist. You know that there's been an effect, and I won't describe the effect. I think we all kind of know what the effect of the Tea Party activists have been on GOP messaging and Republican strategy. How do you recommend that candidates in the Republican Party who want to win (laughs) in the fall um, can explain this issue and create a successful message to Tea Party activists? Well, we talked about that indirectly before when we said energy uh, is also a national security issue. Uh, Most followers of the Tea Party and the polls that I've seen are conservative Republicans and presumably think highly of national security as an issue. So one way is to link energy independence, that is freeing ourselves from imported oil, to national security and to make the case that it's in America's deepest economic and national security interest to change direction on energy issues. Now, I'm one who also thinks that climate change is a very serious issue, probably the most important environmental concern of the 21st century. I know a lot of people, particularly Tea Party activists, don't think that. But that's also a national security issue. The, the country has to work with other nations around the world and, and to begin to re- rethink the role of the energy that we use and where it comes from. But another way to appeal to conservatives is to say, look, there's no reason the government has to do all of this. We're talking about private market investment. Silicon Valley right now is actively putting money into a variety of energy technologies, alternative fuels, renewable sources. Conservatives in Congress and in the states have been endorsing so-called renewable energy portfolios that Mm -hmm. specify what percent of renewable energy Colorado, I think, is up to 30% by the year 2030. Wisconsin has talked about 20% by 2020. This is part of the national energy legislation. But we're really relying on private markets to get us there. So governments play a role, but government's not running the whole show. Right, and that's an important point. And I think, you know, we'll touch on this again after this commercial break. We're going to go to a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back with more with Professor Kraft and Go Green Radio in just a moment. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Interstate Sportsman Talk Radio Show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news. Talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join hosts Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America channel. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Thank you for joining us. I want to remind everybody that we've got a contest going on. The first five people to send me a tweet, at Jill Buck is my handle, asking for a copy, a signed copy, of Professor Michael Kraft's book called Environmental Policy and Politics. You can be a big winner, and we'll be announcing those winners later on. But send me a tweet, and you can win a signed copy of Professor Kraft's book. Well, Professor Kraft is a political scientist. He teaches at the University of Wisconsin, and he got my attention on Sunday when I read his op-ed in my paper, newspaper. It was entitled, Republicans Must Embrace Clean Energy for Their Future. So we've been talking about federal subsidies for everything from electric vehicles to energy storage capacity, but basically the bottom line is that we're talking about how critical it is to our nation's economic strength and national security that we have a strong energy policy and that we everybody gets on board, that it's bipartisan. Now, Professor Kraft, anybody who follows politics knows that the media plays a huge role in public perception of candidates and issues. On the issue of clean energy and our nation's energy future, do you think the media is making it easier or more difficult for moderates in both parties to come together on clean energy policy? Well, I think most of your listeners probably heard this before, but the nature of media in this country has changed dramatically in recent years. Where Once everybody watched CBS, NBC, and ABC nightly news, right. that's not the case anymore. So Internet media, including your radio show and many others like it and websites and blogs and so forth, 
And all that sounds great because it means you have a greater variety of information and much more competition, a lot of interesting um, outlets for, inform- for uh, news and opinion and analysis. The downside of all of this is that people tend to, to be attracted to sources that reinforce their existing opinions, and people don't listen to other sources or don't view the media as an objective source of information any longer. Mm-hmm. So it makes it makes any issue and energy and environment no different from healthcare reform, for example. It tends to polarize people uh, into one camp or the other, and so rather than the media helping people understand the issues and become better informed citizens and creating a dialogue between Republicans and Democrats and liberal conservatives, uh, it, it tends to do the opposite. It tends to make it harder to have those conversations, especially at the national level. I think at the state and local level, where there have been a number of cities that have pursued sustainable energy and sustainable transportation, it's, it's much easier to solve problems and to talk about the best way to solve them at the local level. It's much tougher in the U.S. Congress and in the White House to do this without inviting the kind of partisan bickering that we've seen all too much of in the last decade and and longer. I, I'm still hopeful this can change, and I think that the, the media, all different kinds of media, can be useful sources of information if only people take the time to inform themselves. There are thousands and thousands of sources of information on the Internet, on energy issues and environmental issues and climate change and what to do about them. So there's, there's no shortage of information and analysis if people are willing to put in the time to get to those sources and inform themselves. Well, and that is the biggest issue. I mean, in an economy like what we're facing, you know, a lot of folks are spending a lot of their time doing things to keep the lights on and keep food on the table. It's a difficult time, and it's a distracting time for Americans to double down on their homework when it comes to energy policy. And so it is it is tough. You know, I, I spent Earth Day in China this year, and I spoke at a conference that was honoring green companies, companies that had done – amazing things, really, um, to become more sustainable. And some of them were Chinese companies, and some of them were multinational companies. But one of the hosts that brought me to that conference said something very interesting. He said, you know, climate change began as a scientific discussion, and then it became a political discussion. And more and more, I believe, it's becoming a moral discussion. Now, that was a Chinese perspective, and I, and I do think there's more and more talk of it being a moral discussion. Do you see that same emphasis in the United States? What would happen, politically speaking, if issues around climate change and clean energy became more of a moral discussion rather than a political one? Well, in some ways, it, it has developed in the country this way. In fact, uh, I've, uh, my students well know, I, I mentioned in class that various Groups of evangelical Christians have actually embraced the need to act on climate change and have tried to foster energy legislation, uh, acting on energy legislation before Congress. And the arguments they use, of course, are not scientific and not economic. They are moral and theological. So there there is that potential. And and from my perspective, this really is a moral issue. Academics use a rather complicated term called intergenerational equity to refer to this. And that is essentially, are we being fair to future generations? Uh, some people will put it as, you know, what will our grandchildren think about us yeah. if we uh, create a real mess for them? And, and even going back to the, the first major 
concept of sustainable development to be popular, popularized back in the 1980s by the Brotman Commission in a book called Our Common Future. The, uh, and I won't go into the definition, but to say it really turned on what we owe future generations. That is, what is the right thing to do in terms of leaving the world a better place for the future and not depriving future generations of their own opportunities to have a high quality of life. Uh, use of energy and climate change fundamentally in that sense are moral issues and so it affects all of us what kind of cars we drive what kind of lifestyles we have how big our homes are how much we heat them in the winter and cool them in the summer these all use of energy the way the united states uh, does it has many implications for uh, fairness around the world and fairness to future generations and that might alter the debate a little bit if both parties began thinking of it more in those terms rather than in job creation or even in national security terms I, I couldn't agree with you more. And as many of my listeners know, the genesis of my involvement in green issues and when I founded the Go Green Initiative um, was really centered on children and the needs and the well-being of future generations. And I often think that if we had a few kids in the room <laughs> while Congress was debating some of these issues, it might lend a greater perspective into exactly what you're talking about, um, this idea that we're making decisions today that that our children and grandchildren will have to live with. And I really do think that, that that societal obligation to children and future generations is really where the discussion needs to go. And that's where all the partisan stuff really has no place, because we're talking about putting America, and more specifically, Americans' children, at the forefront of the discussion rather than the midterm elections, and I, and I love the way that you said it, Professor Kraft. Folks, I hate, like the Dickens, that we have to go, but uh, we're nearing the end of Go Green Radio. I would invite all of you to go out to Amazon.com today, check out Professor Kraft's book, Environmental Policy and Politics. Um, it's in its fifth edition. Thank you so much, Professor Kraft, for joining us on Go Green Radio. Folks, we'll be back uh, same time, same place with more Go Green Radio next week. Until then, do something great for the Earth. Do it for your kids, your grandkids, your neighbor's kids. Recycle something. You know, use a little less water. Thank you for listening. Go Green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 